This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill, and we are live at the 2022 Wyoming Bow Hunting Convention. Yeah, it's good to be back for another year. We did this last year in Sheridan, Wyoming, and this year it's in Rock Springs, and we made the drive down from Riverton today on beautiful, beautiful highways. They weren't windblown and windswept. And good road conditions, and you do not have to be a Wyoming resident to be a member of the Wyoming Bow Hunting Club. Yep, so it's it's kind of fun. We're, we're having a good time here. There's a lot of cool people, and we've got a special guest today. I'm going to let her introduce herself. So, Taylor, go ahead. Yeah, so my name's Taylor Lashar, a PhD student with Kevin Monteith at the University of Wyoming in the Monteith shop. And I was here today giving a talk about some of the mule deer research that we're doing in the state. I've been in Laramie since 2015, but I'm a, originally from Arizona, actually. But I love Wyoming. So what part of Arizona? Phoenix. Phoenix. That's like a cooker. It's hot down there. Yeah, not a big fan of Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) I like the Scottsdale area. That's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. And I did my undergrad in Tucson, and I do love Tucson. It's cool down there. So I was down in Wickenburg chasing Havelina last year and this year. One of my really good friends from college is from Wickenburg. That's awesome. Yeah, Arizona's it's a great state. They've got some humongous elk down there. I remember being in the Grand Canyon and walking out the door, and I thought it was a statue of an elk, but it was actually a giant bull elk. I was like, you know, I was walking right by it, and all of a sudden it started moving. I was like, holy cow. <laughs> you know, as the sun was going down, I couldn't tell. But, man, there's a lot of elk down there. Yeah, yeah. And cow's deer, who's deer, depending on who you talk to. Uh, so now, which now is what, it? which is it? Because we've had some serious <laughs> debate here now. Do you guys know Jim Halfinger at all? No. So he's a, a biologist with Arizona Game and Fish, and he's a very staunch supporter of cows, whitetail. Gotcha. I've heard cows. I've heard cows. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'm just a, a big supporter of coos. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in what you like, right? So tell me a little bit about the talk today, just kind of the project that you're currently working on. Yeah, so I was talking about the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project. And so that's a a project that started in 2013. My boss, Kevin Monteith, started it. And it's really evolved since then. And we are working on a a lot of questions. Um, So there's a fawn survival component where we're looking at basically what's influencing survival of of young animals. Uh, We follow females throughout so we catch them every March and December for their whole lives to track nutritional condition and how that ties to various other questions like how well they are at recruiting offspring or uh, what they're doing. Um, And then in 2018, we also added a component looking at bucks as well. So we have both mature males on air as well as animals that we call it as fawns. We're, We're following them to look at how they're growing through time. 
I thought it was really interesting, some of the things that you brought up as far as, you know, the harsh winters and how that affects the fawns and the body size. Talk a little bit about that. That was that was crazy. Yeah, yeah. So most of my dissertation research is focused on those bad winters and how it's affecting the population. But we were talking about a specific deer um, who was born after the 1617 winter, which in the South Wyoming range where a lot of our animals winter is, it was particularly harsh. Talking like 300% snowpack that year. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah highest it's ever been so yeah um, and fawn survival was at least in the wyoming range from what i remember it was really low right yeah none of our none of the collared fawns lived that winter yeah it was it was bad but so after that bad winter one of my favorite deer she's just like a really great mom she lives around cokeville she gave birth to a female and a male fawn and both of them somehow survived even though all those animals were in really bad shape but she she was able to recruit both both her female and male fawn in into adulthood and uh, we were talking a little bit about her her male fawn from 2017 and as he grew up he was just really stunted his antlers were anywhere between 18 and 30 percent smaller than what you would expect for that age class for animals um, and probably in part due to his mom's condition and her nutrition during that really bad winter she just didn't have a lot of resources to to give to her offspring and so she was trying to survive and so Kevin my boss is his master's research was focused on that in a in a captive setting and he has seen that mom's condition when she's pregnant has a for sure effect on on the antler and body size of of her offspring so some of the folks in the crowd (laughs) had brought up some issues like um, you know elk are obviously a lot larger population than they used to be and i i I've heard that from a lot of hunters. A lot of mule deer hunters are saying, hey, you know, we do have an issue here because there's so many more elk, but then you also have so many more whitetail, and then you also have different conditions than we had 30, 40 years ago. So what are you guys seeing is probably the biggest impact, or is it just like a cumulative perfect storm right now for mule deer? Yeah, so Kevin likes to say it's death by a thousand cuts for mule deer. It's just like lots of little things that add up. And because mule deer are so in tune with their landscape, they're so faithful in what they do that when there are changes, they're not able to adjust what they're doing super easily when we do see that with other species. So elk, pronghorn, they're not quite as faithful. They aren't as rigid in their ways as mule deer. And so for mule deer... When you see changes on the landscape, it, it can have higher consequences for them as opposed to other game species. I don't know, David, what do you think? I mean, you're out there in the field a lot more than I am for that reason. Well, for well there definitely is a change in the landscape, and I'm excited that you guys are out there collecting this data and, you know, trying to answer some of these questions as far as, because elk are doing okay in the state, right? We're at mm-hmm. management objective across most of the herds, most of the regions, above in a lot of places, actually. Yeah. But... For whatever reason, you know, mule deer are still, so it's it's not really a conservation issue, right? It's not like overhunting or it's, it. there's something, but I don't think we get to put our finger on, oh, it's this one thing and just fix it overnight. And I think you're exactly right. It's not just one thing. It's cumulative, many, many things that are adding up. What's the primary forage for mule deer that, you know, throughout the year, if you can kind of talk about that, what's important to them to have for nutrition so that they can have a successful fawns and whatnot in year to year yeah so in the wyoming range uh on winter ranges 
80% of their diet is sage rush, which isn't super typical for a mule deer. Um, mountain mahogany can be a really nutritious source of um, forage in the wintertime for animals, but we just don't have a lot of that in the Wyoming range where these animals are wintering. So most of their um, winter diet is made up of sagebrush. In the summertime, they live in pretty variable environments, but tall forb communities are kind of the bread and butter of, of the Wyoming range where there's lupin, geranium, lots of tall forbs that the tall forb communities are often what we see as um, the areas where we're seeing animals that produce fawns and are leaving summer range pretty fat. So a lot of people haven't heard about that green wave you talked about, you know, and could you maybe just give us a, in a nutshell version of kind of that, that mule deer life cycle, you know, Mm-hmm. what they're what they're foraging on where they're going in in kind of a a 12 month yearly cycle. Yeah, so um <clears throat> I talked a little bit in in my talk about surfing the green wave, which is a thing that quite a few people at the University of Wyoming have studied in in various species um but Ellen Akins who was a PhD student with Kevin, she's now in South Dakota. She she looked at that for her dissertation research and basically what it is is as animals are leaving winter range and so as as snow starts to melt out and we start seeing green up on the landscape animals can cue into when forage is at its most nutritious and so as plants get bigger they become more fibrous and as there's more fiber they become a little bit less nutritious for deer and so Basically, deer can kind of key into when plants are at that intermediate stage where there's a good amount of biomass, but they're not too fibrous, and they can uh, basically follow that along an elevational gradient and and maximize the energy that they can get from plants by surfing the green wave or following that green up. And then they'll eventually end on their summer range. They'll spend their summer range, or they'll spend their summer there where they'll raise their fawn and, and put on fat. And then uh, in the wintertime when, or in the fall when um, snow starts to come in and that threat of winter is there, they'll, they'll migrate back down to their winter ranges and spend the next three or four months on the sagebrush step. Yeah, it seems like just the mule deer around my place, I live out in the country north of Riverton, and you kind of watch the deer year to year and where they go and kind of what they do in their habits. They definitely follow that, you know, where's the best food and the easiest food to get, but I, I can echo what some of these guys said in here. I've got way more white-tailed deer than I ever had. And it seems like I, I just don't see the mule deer like I did when I was a kid mm. because it seems like the white-tail kind of out-compete them. And I've actually seen them do it in the alfalfa field. Really? Where, yeah, you'll have a group of mule deer in there and the white-tail will come in and Push them off. chase them off. Oh, interesting. It's crazy to watch. That is crazy, yeah. Because the mule deer are bigger, yeah. <laughs> but the white-tailed deer are more aggressive. They're way more aggressive, yeah. but but think it's about crazy. a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the personalities of the two are a little different. Right? The Great Dane's like, no, <laughs> this thing's crazy. One thing I found really interesting, you know, when you talked about that green wave, I've kind of seen it as far as elk will bypass, you know, chest-high grass to go to their favorite eating areas with their favorite forbs where it's, you know, they've, they've grazed it down to an inch tall, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's more supple, it's fresh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. greener, it's not that dry feed. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is it's not really a feed habitat. You know, it can be when we get a 300% winter, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think there's plenty of feed on the habitat, at, uh, on the landscape at the moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But they're just keying into the, those foods that are the best for them and they'll, yeah look for that more nutritious stuff. 
Yeah. So what's been probably the most interesting thing or thing that's blown you away the most in your research so far? That's a good question. I talked about this story uh, during my talk, but so we catch fawns every summer and I've, I've been doing it for seven years now. So I go back and see the same animals year after year, which is really fun. So we have one deer who summers up at 10,000 feet and in the 16, after that 16, 17 winter, um, she gave birth a lot lower so she didn't make it to her summer range and it's because it was covered in snow like she you could see it in her movement she had tried to get up to 10,000 feet and then turned around and came back down twice and then she ended up giving birth down by a road basically and normally it's a nine mile hike in and yeah we like jumped out of a truck and car <laughs> once but then in 2020 she gave birth she did get up to her summer range and there was a a storm in the middle of June is I think June 16th is when she gave birth and there was a storm that night before and we hiked in and it was like feet of snow and uh, she had given birth and she had just like kicked out this like tiny little bed for her fawns and there's just like snow everywhere and then two fawns in this tiny bed and they lived which I was stoked on and uh, really surprised by I didn't think they were going to make it because it was cold they did eventually die later that summer but they made it through those first few weeks so so predation on these fawns is that a, a pretty big issue here in the state in the wyoming range population it, it's pretty variable what we see as the leading cause of mortality for fawns and we do see with i mean with all big game species mortality in those first few weeks when they're the most vulnerable is is typically highest and so we do see that in the wyoming range but we also see uh quite a bit of uh, stillbirths and uh, disease in the wyoming range um, accidents so we've had animals that have drowned fallen off cliffs got stuck in a bush stuff like that which is interesting to see and kind of sad sometimes but um predation isn't it's not it's not super high in this population and so some years it'll be a little bit higher than others but um it's probably around 30 percent which is is typical for big game yeah I, I know back well and you can attest to this too um back in the early 2000s mid probably really high in 2007 2008 i would drive through this area around pinedale and i mean you count 50 60 mule deer that were hit on the road i mean mm -hmm. they were just everywhere and I mean, that was also a, kind of a peak production time for oil and gas, but I know that probably didn't help a whole lot. Um, and it seems to continue, you know, I, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, wildlife crossings. Mm -hmm. So have you been able to see any like tangible data supporting the fact that it's working and that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing with underpasses, overpasses? Yeah, I don't have numbers in front of me, but there has been quite a bit of research in Wyoming that's looked at that um, with both uh, Game and Fish and YDOT together have worked on a lot of studies. And so in the Wyoming range, they put in a bunch of underpasses along Highway 30 um, between Cokeville and Kemmer. And um, just talking to the biologists there, there is a a very obvious difference um, and I, I don't know the numbers and then there I talked about this a little bit as well um, during the talk but they're putting in a bunch of underpasses along dry piney so north of um, Calpet into that big piney area and you do see right now you see a lot of animals hit on the side of the road when you're driving there so I'm, I'm pretty stoked to see that go in in the next few years yeah I know where David and I live it happens all the time I mean we we see it a lot because we have alfalfa fields everywhere and so the deer are in there quite a bit but a lot of them don't make it yeah and, and i mean it's a little bit self-serving but there's always a little bit of a pain when i see a 
a big mature mule deer buck that's been hit on the side of the road and it's i I mean yeah yeah, i i know that either mother nature's going to take him or hunter's going to take him (laughs) right but just for some reason it it just seems like such a waste when it's a vehicle that takes him oh yeah i so we do cause specific mortality on all of our animals and mostly when i'm going to pick up animals that have died i'm it doesn't really bother me, but it, when it's all, if they're caught in fences or if they're hit by cars, it, it bums me out pretty hard, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like it's not supposed to happen that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how has it been, you know, doing your research and working with hunters? Has that been a good experience as far as, because I know, you know, for us as sportsmen, like we care about the animals a ton and we want them on the landscape, not just because of the harvest, but just we love seeing them. So how has that been? Yeah, it's been great. Uh, hunters in the Wyoming range are really supportive of the work that we do and they're excited to see yeah. us looking into these questions. And then, so we started collaring mature males in 2018 and um, every time someone harvests a male, it's, I really love being able to be like, oh yeah, he's this old and this is where we collared him and this is where he migrated from and being able to like give them some information and it's always been a really positive interaction there um so i yeah i've had a a great time working with hunters on this yeah yeah that's pretty cool i i imagine getting to tell the story of the animal is kind of a rewarding thing for you too yeah i love it yeah so how many animals are you handling in a year i mean i imagine it's a fair amount but how many how many do you typically collar or handle and study So we have 70 adult females that we have in the population and we catch those every March and December. We only catch our mature males once, so we just fit them with a collar one time and then we let them go. We'll catch fawns in the spring and that's typically about somewhere between 70 and 90 fawns that we're catching. And then um, we will catch any males that we caught as a fawn originally, we catch them in the fall so that we can measure their antlers and, and look at how they're growing through time, which is not a whole lot. It's probably anywhere between seven and 10 each each fall. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So what's one thing sportsmen can do to help mitigate threats against mule deer specifically? You know, is there a time frame that's more crucial? Is there something we can do to, to kind of help the study go better and maybe maybe eliminate one of these questions? Honestly, I think sportsmen are one of the greatest groups in helping us because you guys are advocates for, for our research and, and sportsmen are one of the people who care about these animals more than most other members of the public because you're out there chasing them and yeah you want to see these populations do well honestly supporting supporting things like bow hunters or muley fanatics or or these ngos that can provide funding to to research groups is is a huge thing and then yeah also i don't know i love talking to people when i'm out there and hearing uh, stories, especially people who've been hunting areas for 10, 15, 20 years. It's, yeah. it's really awesome to hear like, oh yeah, there was a bunch of deer here when I was younger and now I'm not seeing them and, and kind of hearing on the ground stories of, of the, the area that I'm in is awesome. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a stigma out there and I know you've probably seen it where people think that hunters are just these guys that just want to go out and shoot and kill everything that they see and that they don't care about the animals and that's always bothered me because it's 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 prevalent out there and then when people sit down with a a sportsman like David or myself they're like oh man you guys really care about these animals and so 
I don't know if you could speak to that a little bit, you know, just your observation of that, because there is a prevalent, like, attitude of hunters are the bad guys, and really, I don't think it's that way. Do you guys feel that in Wyoming? Not so much. It's more the coast, coastal folks think that we're just horrible. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I, yeah. So, in Wyoming, I feel like sportsmen are... I don't. I think they're some of the biggest supporters of wildlife research, and I really—that's one of the things I really like about working in this state—is working with people who who care so much and are invested in it in a way that you guys, like sportsmen, are on the ground. They you're thinking about these animals. Mm-hmm. You want them to do well, and I think, yeah, like I just think the perception's wrong. Yeah, right? yeah. like I think. I think if people actually sat down and spent some time with us, they'd understand why we are the way we are and how much we actually do care. Yeah. I just think that there is a perception that, you know, it's just like a killing spree or something like that. And it's like, man, that we appreciate these animals so much more than you understand. And probably more than other people do. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, we live around them like David, his place, he's got animals my place. We've got animals and we want them to do well. And we, and yeah. we watch them all the time. Like I watched the mule deer, eat my crab apples off my tree in the wintertime and I'm hoping that they're healthy, you know, like we really do care about them. Yeah. And I can see from an outsider's perspective how it, it looks a little self-serving to be like, well, I just want more mule deer, bigger mule deer. So I get to kill another mule deer buck every year. And while yes, I do want to shoot a mature mule deer buck. I'm, I am not bashful about saying that I like mature <laughs> mule deer buck. I like they're big beautiful. bucks. It's, it's something inspiring and getting more information, you know, from, just birth and life and death because i'm just out there in the all year watching the deer trying to find the deer trying to find that big buck but i don't get the gps tracking data and so some of those maps and getting to see where they're going where they're migrating where they're eating where they're stopping that's that's cool data that's just information you know i've been hunting for years and i haven't got but you know for the joe public general well this guy just you know they could look at me and say i just want more deer so i can harvest more deer while Yes, I do want to put a, a deer and an elk in the freezer every year because I love clean protein. At the same point in time, I really enjoy just watching, spending time learning how animals interact in their habitat, right? Watching, I, I know for a fact, if you watch a few mule deer does and you watch their body language, they'll tell you if a predator's in the area. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you if another deer's in the area. They'll tell you if, if they're alerted or not. You know, you can just very, just with their body language very quickly, and it's amazing their eyesight and their ears, how quickly they'll pick up another horse or another hunter or another cow or another coyote. And <laughs> a mule deer doe will, will eat a coyote's lunch if she wants to. I mean, it's, it's kind of They're fun tough. to watch. Tough. Yeah, and I guess, so that, that's, I think, something that I, I really appreciate about sportsmen because they're out there, and I don't think it's possible to be out there watching animals. And yeah, maybe you're watching a mature buck, but you're also watching does and fawns, and you're watching how they interact with elk or pronghorn or like just how they're moving through the landscape. And I don't think it's possible to be out there watching animals and not grow to appreciate them for what they are. I think what people forget about hunters is for us, 90% of the experience is just the observation of the animals and the excitement of being in their turf 
going after them. It's it's not about killing them. Yeah. It's it's really about the pursuit of them that is the exciting part for us. In fact, yeah. and David knows this, I'm getting soft in my old age. I don't like killing animals really anymore. Like I really, really don't. Like it it it's hard for me. But I would go but, as far to say, Patrick, that you know, the person that is saying, Well don't kill any animals and just eat tofu they're killing hundreds of rabbits and mice and snakes for that pound of tofu versus that pound of clean protein that I get. I took one life. So if you want to go, you know, on a balance sheet, life for life, I take one deer, your hundred pounds of tofu that you're eating killed how many Animals lives in the field, in the yeah. field, you know, all the, all the pesticides, all the, so to sit there on one side and say, well, I'm just going to eat tofu. I'm not going to kill deer and elk and I'm not going to take part of that. And then to use it as a moral high ground to tell me I shouldn't hunt, I, I have a big problem with that. If you want to do it because holistically you think it's better, fine. But lording it over somebody else and yeah. saying your way of life is better than another is not. And more importantly, my sportsman dollars are going to fund these mule deer, going back into conservation so that we can have a healthy, sustainable herd indefinitely. Your tofu dollars are doing what? Yeah, well, and I think that we've seen that with North American conservation model, right, for years. We've pounded that. But uh, so getting back to this, I mean, what's the most rewarding part of your job? That's a good question. Um, I'm jealous you get to put hands on live animals, I know, it's so cool. That is so cool. I think the most rewarding part for me is following an animal for many, many years and watching how it changes what it does. And I didn't really appreciate that before I was on this project. I think a lot of projects, you just put collars on one time and then let them go and then you get your data back in a few years and, and can answer questions. But being able to to watch these animals and especially a lot of my favorite animals aren't the animals that are doing huge migrations or aren't doing something really cool or novel it's just she's a good mom and year after year she's good at raising her offspring and year after year she does this thing and so i think the most rewarding part is getting to know the animals like intimately in a way that I wouldn't be able to on a, on a different kind of project. One thing I learned from your talk today is, you know, mom and grandma are having their their bonds together, bonds together yeah. the same place that they were both so born. Cool. You know, I kind of thought in my mind, you know, just as a hunter, well, I sometimes see a deer here, I sometimes see a deer there. And when they're migrating 250 miles, you know, you see them part of the year here and there. I'm like, yeah, they're just willy-nilly around. No, they are intentionally going from A to B, and they know where they're going, yeah. and they know when to go. That that was intriguing. Yeah, it's it's been really cool to see that. And so there's a research scientist who's working on those questions right now, Rain and Jacob Pack, and I think she's hopefully close to like getting some results out there on that, which I'm, I'm really stoked on. But yeah, you can see, too, when they start migrating, sometimes these animals are going back together. So like... They might not spend their summers together. They're, they're really close to each other. Like but hundreds of yards apart. Yeah, but then once they start migrating, they hook back up and like as a family group are migrating, which is just so cool to see. Little family reunion and family trip, right? <laughs> yeah. So cool. I want to know about the sheep side because the sheep hunter and me, you, you mentioned that. And so you got to introduce that and tell me the backstory. So I forgot that. to warn you, he's a sheep nut. So here we go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So my master's was looking at basically how hunting affects horn size in bighorn sheep. Uh, so there's been some work out of Alberta that has shown that with really intensive and selective hunting that you can see genetic reductions in horn size. And 
that work has been kind of sensationalized and people are really latched onto it um, and taken it to th- to to maybe say that how we harvest sheep or if we're selectively harvesting for, for big bucks or big rams that we're um, having these detrimental changes to them. And so that population in Alberta is, is heavily hunted. And I'm not sure if you guys are super familiar with the um, practice up there, but residents can get tags every other year. And it's any ram is legal as long as he has a four-fifth curl, which just means the tip of his horn is like lined up with his eye. And so when you have selective pressure like that and a lot of tags going out, you can see uh, genetic changes. Like that is true. That can happen. But so we wanted to look at it across all of North America because how we harvest sheep in the lower 48 is very different than how they're um, killing sheep in Alberta. And so we used uh, harvest records from state agencies from Arizona up into Montana uh, across the West to, to look at these questions. And mostly what we found is that there isn't any obvious changes in horn size as, as a result of hunting. And a big part of that is because we're not killing a lot of sheep. So if we're only giving out two or three tags to a hunt area and we don't have any kind of size requirement, then it's that pressure, that selection for fast-growing horns isn't there. And so we're not in how we harvest sheep in most of North America. It doesn't look like we're having uh, detrimental effects on their horn size. So did you get to do much field work with sheep for that? Or was it just looking at harvest data? It was all harvest data. So it was all like historic data. But Kevin does have sheep projects throughout the state. So I have helped with some actual sheep work before. So go back to that a little bit. So explain what you mean by it had an effect on the genetics of that herd Mm -hmm. so explain what i think i know what you mean but just explain what that actually means to the public you know how how could that have an effect by having that much more pressure yeah so if you think about it so animals that are growing really quickly are going to reach a four-fifths curl faster so if you have an animal that grows quicker, he might reach four-fifths curl by five years of age. And if you are giving out a lot of tags and every animal that reaches a four-fifths curl is getting harvested the year that he reaches a four-fifths curl, those animals that grow faster, so those like five or six-year-olds that reach a four-fifths curl are going to get killed before they have a chance to breed. And those animals that maybe take a little bit longer to reach a four-fifths curl, so they might not get there till eight or nine are the ones that are going to stick around. And over time, you could see a genetic change because of that. So those slower growing rams are lasting in the population longer because they're not a legal size until they're older. And when you're killing all of the animals that are at a four-fist curl the year that they're at a four-fist curl, that's when you're going to see a genetic change. But because we're not killing rams like that in most of North America, we're not seeing those changes. In Alaska, I mean, what they do is they actually do full curl Mm -hmm. or age. And, you know, you're reaching sexual maturity at five, eight is the age, right? Yeah. So it's a little different than that four-fifth curl because that's that four-and-a-half, five-year-old. They're just reaching maturity, and then you're pulling them out of the population. And that's what you really want to do in the in the model that I've heard is you really want to take the ones that are basically aging out of that maturity. Mm-hmm. You really want to leave the ones in their prime yeah. in the gene pool. And if if you're doing it based on, so I think age is a a great way and you do have to field age an animal, but when you're also field judging a four-fist curl, that's like maybe a millimeter, like I think both of those can be difficult sometimes, but if you're killing an animal that you know is eight, it doesn't matter how far his horns have grown already, like 
he's already at that point. So, yeah, his genetics are there if they're there, and they're not if they're not. So it's all about management practices, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, yep, exactly. Because, I mean, we've seen this with other species as well. I've seen it in fisheries. That's more, more my end is the fishing side. If you have a fishery where you don't have the correct limit, it it's, doesn't take long for fishermen who are really good to really hammer that population. And then before long, I mean, you just don't have much to go yeah. to go fish for. And I mean, it's the same thing in hunting. It's just yeah. allowing those fish to get to the maturity level yeah. to pass on and yeah. get their genetics going. So yeah, and the, the other thing is which. A, a lot of the other work that's been done on selective harvest is with fishing, um, but with bighorn sheep, 50% of the population were not killing based on their horns. So, like, females are still passing on genes. Like, mm -hmm. they still exist in the population, even if we are killing the males, which is, I think, something that uh, people don't always think about. Now, what is one of the threats facing the sheep here in this state? So, uh, I think uh, a big threat is disease. So um, Kevin has a project. He has two students on it, Brittany Wagler and Rachel Smiley, who are looking at questions of nutrition and disease. So they're working on the whiskey herd, the Jackson herd, and then they're also catching sheep on the west side of the winds. And the, the whiskey herd is it has a lot of pneumonia in it, and they're not doing super well. It's really so, bad right now. Yeah. And the, the whiskey herd is the herd that basically repopulated the whole West. I know. Yeah. I mean, from the yeah. 70s on, right? Yeah. So speak a little bit when you're going to actually capture a species. I don't care, pick one. What all is entailed in this? Take me on the journey with you of capturing <laughs> one of these. Yeah, so it depends on, on what animal we're doing. But for a lot of what we uh, do in the state, uh, we're using helicopter net gunning as our, our capture method. And so we contract out to a, a capture crew who that's their whole job. Um, and they're very good at what they do. And so they they basically will, will shoot a net over the animal. They'll, they'll catch it. They'll um, bring it into a processing location for us. And that's when we'll work it up. So we'll do... We'll look at nutrition and pregnancy, fit it with a collar, take morphometrics and, and biological samples, um, and then we release it from there. But So the helicopter net gunning is the safest way to actually handle animals. Most of the time, there can be exceptions depending on the terrain, but we're not giving them any drugs, so we don't have to worry about how that's going to interact with their physiology, and also we are releasing them immediately. So if you give them a bunch of drugs and then let them go that can affect how they interact with the world around them and so from when the net gun goes off until they're released kind of average obviously there's flight time from wherever mm -hmm. they capture it to where you set up and you're probably doing multiple animals a day from that same location but mm -hmm. you know what's an average time frame from when they shoot the net gun till that animal's free again so probably 15 minutes it's pretty fast. So we will only catch animals if they're within uh, a three-mile radius of us. So we don't want to let them go 20 miles from where we caught them. And the, the capture crew is very efficient at what they do. So they'll they'll bring them in, and it takes about 10 minutes to process an animal, and then we let them go. So probably about 15 minutes. You're just taking all those, all the data, all you need. You're putting a collar on them, and they're back on their way. Yeah, and a lot. Kevin has handled thousands and thousands of animals, and so he's very efficient and has trained us all on how to do things as effectively and efficiently as possible, so that we're minimizing stress on the animals. Explain the process of how you get the data off of the collar. 
because I think a lot of people don't understand how that works. Yeah, so a lot of our callers are Iridium, and so they communicate with a satellite, and so we actually don't need the caller in hand to get any of the data. So basically, once the, the caller is on the animal, it just communicates with the satellite, and then every day it'll upload the most recent points. Um, we do have a handful of store onboard callers, and so... Those collars work where they will send one point a day, but then they store the remainder of the points on the collar. And in those instances, we do have to have the collar back in hand, and then we can just plug it into our computer, basically, and, and download the points that way. Yeah, because I think some people think that it's like a constant communication, but what they don't understand is that the collar can't handle that. Yeah. And so it's it's sporadic, but it does track data points as they go. Yeah, and so for a lot of our male collars, they're um, store on board, and so we don't have most of the data in hand until either that animal's harvested or, or it dies and we can go pick up the collar. So is there a way to ping it then to kind of figure out where it is? Yeah, so they we have our setup so that it'll give us one point a day. So we don't know exactly where they are all the time. So with the females, where they are Iridium and they're giving us, we know where they are hourly and it'll update every six to 12 hours depending on how we have it set up. But for the males, it'll be, we'll get one point a day and it'll update every three or four days. So... So you can notice if he hasn't moved in yeah. you know, and four days. Yeah, they're all equipped with mortality sensors as well. So if the collar yeah. itself doesn't move for six hours, it will it'll send us an email and tell us that that collar is in mortality, and it'll send a point with that as well. That's really cool. Yeah, makes your job easier. It does. <laughs> yeah. But then you're gonna go out and you want to find the end of this story, right? You're gonna yeah, figure out yeah. was it a predator, was it a vehicle mortality, was it maybe yeah. a hunter, right? Yeah. Exactly. If a hunter does take a collared animal, what? I mean, what's turn the collar in? What's yeah. protocol? Yeah, it's totally legal, and um, we say, like if if somebody asks us about it, basically we say like the collar shouldn't influence if you do or do not harvest the animal. You should do what you were going to do anyways. We put our phone numbers on all of them. And so most of the time hunters will call us before it even goes into mortality because it has to sit for a certain amount of time. And then um, we'll just coordinate how to pick it up from them. And with our uh, our male collars, we try to see if they'll let us come and measure the antlers as well because we're looking at some of the questions we're looking at is how uh, antler size and age influences how vulnerable animals are to harvest. Yeah. And for me, I, I mean, waterfowl, I want to shoot a banded <laughs> bird. I've shot one. I want to shoot another banded bird, right? I'm excited about that. But there's some, there's a stigma about shooting a collared buck. I, I'm, I'm on the fence. I don't know if I would or wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, I guess part of me wants to think that I'm the first human to ever see or interact or be part of this animal's life. <laughs> and so it, 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 and this, I'm not blowing steam at anybody who may or may not shoot a colored animal. I'm just saying that for me, it, it would change it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it was a helicopter that chased it down. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, I guess maybe that, sure. that changed a little bit. I guess I'm not as fast as a helicopter. So it's somebody better no. than me didn't get there. It just, it still feels like I wasn't the first one there. Oh, I got, yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. So talk about the different agencies you're working with. Cause I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of different agencies at this point. Yeah. So the Wyoming Game and Fish Department's the, one of the biggest collaborators on the project and they, they started the project with Kevin. Um, and then the Bureau of Land Management is also a really big um, collaborator as well. And they provide quite a bit of funding for us. And uh, we're, so <clears throat> there's many, many partners on this project. And so we have 
a handful of biologists from Game and Fish who work with us, and then we have a biologist with uh, BLM, Mark Tonoff, and then a biologist with the Forest Service, uh, Rusty Kaiser, who are super involved as well. Um, and then we have support from like the Fish and Wildlife Service. They have uh, bunk houses that they let us stay in in the summertime, and it's a very, very collaborative project, which is uh, awesome in that we get to work with a lot of cool people, and they also really help us to make sure that we can get our job done. Yeah, I'm sure you get to meet a lot of really cool people with a lot of yeah. neat backgrounds too. Yeah, so that'd yeah. be fun. Yeah, I, I have another question about like the Whiskey Mountain herd. Just talking about sheep, I, I went up there. It's been about a month ago. I didn't see any, and typically I go up in like February and I could see them, you know, ranging up in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know the disease factors is what's killing that herd, but. Has there been any kind of like breakthrough on like how to get them to avoid, you know, transmitting pneumonia? Because I mean, I know that's just the, the absolute killer for that group. I mean, in my opinion, as a sheep hunter, I'm like, let's just get every domestic sheep off the hill. Oh, but yeah. That pneumonia, it sounds like potentially, and these are one of the questions that they're going to look into and work on is it might be perpetually in the soil, right? So even if we remove the domestics, they might still. Now that's within the herds, they might. And, and so, yeah, I'm glad you guys are out there looking at these questions, trying to get answers these questions, you know, putting some hypothesis out there. Because when you guys finally do come up with an answer, you know, these answers are setting policies, setting tags, mm-hmm. limits, setting bag <laughs> limits, setting seasons, setting forest service policy of who, where, when can interact. I mean, I think of the Spence Mor- Moriarty area up there. You know, there's no human interaction from December 15th till May 15th, right? No yeah. human presence, which is a crucial time for the elk, and that's one of the elk feed grounds. And I know there's another question out there of elk feed grounds, should we have them or not? I'm not going <laughs> to That's say, a big can of worms right there. <laughs> I'm not opening that can of worms without saying one way or another, but I'm glad you guys are out there doing the actual boots-on-the-ground work to answer these questions because it's pretty easy for me to, to armchair quarterback this from home and say, yeah, get the domestic sheep off the mountain. I never want to see another one. Because uh, for me, waiting 25, 27 years to get a bighorn sheep tag here in Wyoming, I, okay, if we could have 5% more recruitment, maybe I could get that yeah. tag five more years sooner. And yeah. and then we could have a healthier herd and population. And I'm, I'm willing to wait almost 30 years to go sheep hunting. <laughs> yes. But when it's my turn, I want my turn, dang it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's interesting. So some of the things that Rachel and Brittany have found is, so the pathogens that cause pneumonia are prevalent in the whiskey herd, the Jackson herd, as well as on the other side of the winds. But the Jackson herd and on the other side of the winds, those sheep are doing so much better. And so they all have the same pathogens, but the, the whiskey herd just has more pneumonia and they're not doing as well. And so, yeah, that's some of the things they're trying to figure out is what is causing Why? it. Yeah. Like, it, it exists in all of them, but two of the populations are doing a lot better than whiskey. So, yeah. yeah. So for you, what's the, uh, so how much longer do you have in this program and what's next? What's your plan? Uh, so I probably have a year and a half left and then I'll, I'll be done with my PhD. I don't know what the plan is yet. I love working in Wyoming. I think I was I'd gonna like say, to keep working stay in here? Yeah. yeah, I think it's a pretty saturated market right now. There's a lot of big game research going on, so I'm not sure what is what's going to end up happening. But I would I would love to stay here. Yeah. So, year and a half. Hopefully, stay in Wyoming. Maybe work with the Game and Fish. Maybe something like that. Yeah, and I honestly still working for Kevin after I finish would be pretty awesome. 
That's great. We do have some amazing biologists in the state. And, you know, we were talking earlier about Dan Thompson. He's, you know, the large carnivore guru. We've had him on three different times to talk about wolves and mountain lions and grizzly bears. Like, we have hit the jackpot in this state. We have some of the best people in the entire world, I think. Dan's great. He, uh, I'm on the Wyoming TWS, uh, the Wildlife Society board, and he's super involved. And yeah, I love working with Dan. Yeah, he's good with the public and really good with biology. So yeah, and you guys are doing the work. I mean, it, without the data that you're collecting and the information, it can't manage them nearly as well and i think that it's going to make a big difference long term i know david and i we just loved having dan on and it's been fun having you on too awesome yeah so this was really fun i'm learning a lot about you know the different challenges and i think mule deer it's it's going to be really tough you know yeah. the next 10 years we're going to see what happens but so taylor if somebody wanted to get more of the actual data of the of the report you gave today how do they get a hold of you? Where do they get that report? Yeah, so we actually we have a, a website, monteeshop.org, um, that has a bunch of the information on not just the Wyoming Range Project, but all the projects that Kevin's working on, including some of the sheep work that we just talked about. Well, we really appreciate your time. I know that you just got done with the talk, and I kind of hijacked you, but I was like, man, you know, we have a big audience that is international and all over the U.S., so this is yeah. something good that they can learn about and and hopefully get some more information sorry i don't know who's got the loud thing going on here. it's all right that's that's what happens when you're recording live holy smokes yeah but anyway taylor real- thanks for coming on seriously yeah. um, all the work you're doing is really it was really interesting and you know i again it's gonna go set policy and hopefully you know get our get our mule deer herds on the right track Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And one of the things we like to do is, you know, later on, as you learn more and you get more data points and you have other good information to share is to hopefully have you come back on. So I'd love to. if you're willing, if we didn't scare you away today with our crazy questions, but um, (laughs) that'd be fun. Yeah, for sure. All right. Awesome. Well, again, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Radcast Outdoors. Don't forget to support our sponsors. So I do have a deal to tell you about. If you go to pklure.com right now and you type in the um, promo code PKPRO, you get 15% off of your order and shows PK that, you know, our listeners are supporting PK Lure. So please go do that. Also go to High Mountain Jerky's website. Get, if you get are a uh, successful on that mule deer hunt this right. fall. They're or hopefully a whitetail or elk. <laughs> <laughs> Take a few may, of those may, off the Maybe landscape. a sheep. Yeah, so you can get a jerky kit or a seasoning kit or something like that. And, um, again, show them your love. And then, of course, bow spider. We're here doing bow spider stuff. But if you haven't checked out the bow spider and you're a bow hunter, you got to go get that done. Go to bowspider.com and get your bow spider. So until next time, we'll come back with another episode of Radcast Outdoors. Mm-hmm.